Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Dr. Anas Nader is the co-founder and CEO of Patchwork Health. From working in the NHS, Anas witnessed firsthand the challenges with over-reliance on temporary agency staff, costing the NHS millions of pounds each year, as well as the lack of flexible working. With NHS workers having very little say in their shift patterns and huge barriers existing to people working across multiple NHS sites. Seeing an obvious problem, Anas left the NHS to build Patchwork Health, an end-to-end solution that helps the NHS more effectively manage their workforce and improve collaboration across teams and NHS sites. They've also created a truly flexible working environment for clinicians, giving them the power to choose when and where they work. So no surprise then that they now work with over 100 NHS sites and 40,000 workers, helping the NHS to solve their staffing problem and to save millions every year. Hey, Nas, pleasure to have you on the show. You, you have the honour of being the first guest of season three. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Good. No problem. Um, so look, I, you know, always intrigued in someone's like motivations, especially in terms of like how that affects their career choices. So um, just thought I'd ask by, you know, what first attracted you to a career in medicine? Ooh. Um, so yeah, Patrick Health is my third act. Being a doctor was my second act. And um, I probably wanted to be a doctor since I was um, a teenager. And um, it has always been something that Fascinated, fascinated me primarily because I was uh, very curious about um, how the human body worked. And I found like everything else you could learn by tinkering with things. I was always a tinkerer as a, as a child, um, whether it's computers, toys, whatever it is. The human body was more complex and yeah. for tinkering. And I think it just kind of... I hated the fact that I didn't understand how my body works and how people's bodies worked and what made them break. And, 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 and I found it fascinating that actually they can be fixed if you know what you're doing. So it was purely a scientific curiosity, less so interest in the clinical aspect of it. It's only after I started training in medicine that I just realized I actually love the clinical part more, the, 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 the patient interactions, the, uh, the ability to have that very privileged relationship with your patients uh, for them to open up with you and confide in you, both physical ailments and social ailments at times. And you being able to have that, as brief as an interaction as it is, a, a positive positive impact. So I think I, I, I was drawn into it by the scientific curiosity, but fell in love with, love with, the, with, the, with, the, with the clinical uh, uh, patient interaction at all. Yeah, no, I can totally imagine. And um, we're going to pick up, I guess, the kind of personal story in a little bit. But I always like to speak to the guests um, for a moment about like the the space they work in, which obviously with yourself is is healthcare. Um, and I feel like you've got quite yeah. a unique perspective because you're someone that's you know practiced. Um, you worked in the NHS, but now you are a solution provider to the NHS. Um, yeah. And we see the you know, UK healthcare systems in the news pretty much every day quite a broad yeah. question but what's what's like your assessment of the current state of the nhs at the moment and like some of the, the what are the biggest problems that exist right now for the nhs Ooh, that's a there's so many ways to tackle that question um so i mean listen, i'm the question about the state of the nhs i am not i'm not a doom and gloom guy when it comes to uh when it comes to the state of the nhs primarily because i think what makes the NHS what it is, is the people in it. Um, it's not some abstract entity. It's over a million, come up with the most recent stack, something around 1.2, 1.3 million, possibly even higher now, uh, people in the, in the UK work for the NHS. Um, so it's, it's, it's those people that make the NHS what it is and the incredible work done by clinicians, managers, um, everything in between is what makes it, what gives me hope because that hasn't changed for the most part. 
it's, it attracts people who really uh, find a career in healthcare a calling, something that, 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 that drives them every day to do the best they can, which gives me hope that there is still a future where the NHS can remain the institution that we've always known it for, um, from cradle to grave, providing the best care, world-class care. Um, so I'm not, I'm not ready to raise a white flag yet and say, you know, had its glory days and its best days are behind us. Having said that, I'm also a realist and I appreciate the challenges we're going through, um, which are, which can feel, can feel insurmountable. Um, but I think it's important to appreciate that this wasn't an overnight problem that got us here. This wasn't COVID or post-COVID challenges that got us here. This is at least a decade or two of uh, compounding issues. Starting off with the fact that we've got an aging population that is ever more um, a needing of social and healthcare services with very complex comorbidities um, that the NHS historically wasn't really designed for. Um, and I think in the last tw- 10 or 20 years, that increase in demand on the system with not a matched supply of resources, whether it's natural resources, human resources, the staffing issues, um, the funding issues have compounded to where it was. And COVID plus COVID, post-COVID backlogs have just crippled um, the NHS and taken away any any remaining um, uh, 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 slack in the system there was any at all. Um, and I think when we think about where the challenge stems from, I think it's the two ends of the spectrum. It's not really, as much as delivering care itself has become harder because primarily uh, uh, the resourcing and staffing of, of, of the NHS is, is a huge challenge. But really it comes at the two ends, of the other ends of the, the issue, which is preventative care and social care. So the preventative side, I think, as a, as a nation and as a society, we should do a lot better in preventing people getting too ill um, through better public uh, health interventions. So whether it's tackling metabolic diseases um, such as diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular diseases, um, smoking and others, or also um, looking at earlier screening of diseases that are not preventable, like cancer, but not preventable, of course, but ones that are more about lifestyle, which is more about just genetics and epigenetics, to just screen earlier to prevent more complex care down the line. That really reduces the demand on the NHS itself. Then the second half comes how we resource the NHS for being able to care for the ones who do need care, simple or complex care. And the last end of that spectrum, which is the social care. The NHS has become a safety net for our um, uh, 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 for, for, for when social care fails our population. So whether it's elderly patient complex care um, or, or, or long-term um, care for, 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 uh, uh, for more frail patients who need more dependence and more support, and the lack of community-based support services uh, is a result of the fact that just more of those patients are ending up in our hospital beds um, because that's the only place for them to be safe. So we can't talk about tackling the NHS's challenges without first ensuring that we're also investing in prevention and we're also massively investing in social care. Um, and then of course, uh, 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 the NHS challenges remain um, uh, uh, an issue to be tackled, but I think it makes problem more more solvable because otherwise it just feels like an impossible um, mountain to climb if we just assume that the NHS can do all of that itself without the other issues being resolved. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a tough, <laughs> big question and I think you answered that very, very well, uh, clearly. Um, in terms, and some of the listeners to the show are actually UK based. So, so to, to explain kind of like any changes that are required, if they do happen, because the NHS is a public body, ultimately, like how, how much of it falls on the government to drive, you know, uh, to allocate extra funding, make the changes required versus the changes that can happen within like the NHS and it's more a leadership thing within the NHS, for example? 
Um, I mean, I think they did both. I think I think I don't think it's 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 um, it will require um, more funding for sure and require more investment. And the UK in general is one of those countries that's actually quite efficient. Um, if you look at the spending on healthcare by GDP compared to OECD countries, which is countries you know, high high income countries, whether it's um, in Europe, North America, or even other parts of the world, um, the UK is actually quite efficient. I can't remember the most recent stats, but I think it's roughly half of what the US spends per capita, regardless of that spending comes, because in the US it's a mix of government and private spending and insurance based spending. And in Europe, you have mixed models as well, and some are a bit more government based, some others are, lo- are less so. But regardless of where that funding is coming from, in terms of spending per, per citizen, the UK is actually quite efficient. So, which tells us that this, we can afford to spend more uh, to catch up with peers because healthcare is 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 is, is, is becoming more expensive and, and more investments needed. So, uh, definitely a, a a commitment from 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 governments to invest better is is needed. In terms of NHS leadership, now there's still kind of areas of the NHS itself, which, by the way, just for for, for your listeners, the NHS is not led by politicians. The NHS is funded by politicians. The NHS is led by technocrats. These are uh, civil servants, leaders um, who who are who don't change as elections come and go, right? They're, they're the NHS leadership. Um, they are they know they know what needs to be done, and often are very close to the problem. So we need to kind of empower them to 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 address their problems um, locally, because different regions and different hospitals and different um, populations have very different challenges. Um, but there are obviously areas that can help them um, deliver better care, more efficient care. Um, a lot of that is, is, is driven by collaborative, collaborations. So healthcare organizations are collaborating to deliver uh, high quality efficient care. Um, digitization is a big part of what NHS leadership have been looking at in the last decade, accelerated since COVID, to, to, to find uh, just either efficiencies in how we do things or improving quality of what we do. And without being too much of a, a, a tech evangelist, because it can come across that way sometimes, but the hard reality of the matter is every industry that has been disrupted with technology has seen much higher productivity and efficiencies. Um, healthcare has probably not had the best track record of that historically, because the early digitizations have either failed or, in fact, might have created more work than taken out work from the system. Have might have added more bureaucracy rather than less bureaucracy. In a few studies in the last 20 years that looked at certain types of electronic patient record systems that have actually made the job of a doctor or a nurse uh, slower and more complex rather than the speed of grabbing a pen and a paper and you know drafting your notes. Now, of course, there's a lot of good reasons why you want to move away from the pen and paper into digital systems for patient records keeping. Um, and all these reasons stand, but it's also important to understand that. When we choose technology, it needs to be more than just digitizing an analog process. It needs to really transform entirely the workflow that you're doing so you can capture those gains. So I think a mix of, of, of local empowerment and collaboration with digitization can enable NHS leaders, independent of funding, um, to, to hopefully find ways to improve productivity, reduce kind of the, 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 the uh, uh, inefficiencies in the system, but that's, that cannot be discussed in isolation. Funding is still needed, um, and we have some way to go to, to catch up with our peers. Absolutely. And, and I was going to ask you next was like in the short to medium term, what trends do you think we're going to see more generally in healthcare, not, not NHS specifically? And you, you already answered like from an NHS perspective, continued investment in technology and efficiency. The other thing that I've seen from speaking to people on the podcast and just generally through work um, that work within healthcare is um, more kind of like B2B2C solutions popping up. So like employer paid healthcare solutions. Um, do you think that's also something we may see more of, especially when you talk about like preventative care and like you know, the, this war for talent that exists? Do you think there's going to be more expectation of employers to provide more to employees and look after them, especially if there's strains on the, the public health system? Um. So I, yes, yes, I think, and I think broadly speaking, that's a good thing. Um, to be clear, this is separate to private, private privatizing healthcare. Right? This is talking about um, large 
employers and organizations investing in health and wellness for prevention. So you, you've got programs that invest in, you know, fitness. And if you have one of those trackers on your, on your wrist um, that tracks your steps, you get some kind of discount and, um, or, or, or additional kind of general mental health wellness initiatives that can be driven by employers. Those are good. That is good. That can help reduce the strain of the system by preventing um, uh, uh, citizens from 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 uh, becoming ill, or if they become ill, that they are treated as early as possible before their illness becomes more complex and harder harder to address by the NHS. So, those definitely are good things, and these are good initiatives. So, uh, and I think as much as I think a lot of prevention is is led by uh, public organisations, I think the private um, the private uh, sector, primarily as employers or even citizens themselves, taking a bit more ownership over their um, well-being and health is is generally a good thing that should be should be encouraged. Um, and I think we will see a bit of that. In, in, you know, I mean, it's early days, but the quantified self that comes from measuring everything that we measure about ourselves. Um, there's a whole generation of 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 younger, I say younger in quotations because age is relative, but younger populations, by the time they become the biggest healthcare population as they as they age, um, they're probably a lot more aware of their of their um, health and well-being because they've just been part of a generation where we track a lot of that, we pay more attention to that, um, we're more aware of what we put into our bodies, we're more aware of how we move our bodies. So I'm not up to date with most recent research and it's still early days because it's less than a decade since we've been wearing these things on our wrists and our thing, and our rings now and everything else. But um, I suspect that we'll have a trend where more and more people will start you know, taking a bit more ownership over their own health and well-being. And yeah, hopefully that will have a downstream effect, but I think it's a bit early to comment on that. Yeah, oh, I, hope so. I hope so as well. Um, and I guess to shift the conversation back towards kind of patchwork health and, and the area of focus for you, which I guess is that kind of middle slither you talked about with NHS, which is like the resource and staffing. Um, before we talk about what patchwork health does, can you give an idea of like how workforce management used to work pre-patchwork? Like what the problems were that existed from both an employer and NHS perspective, as well as a worker and clinician? Sure. So, I mean, probably worth making a couple of kind of like bring your audience up to speed of what we do today, uh, and then we can talk about, about history. So, we yeah. started off in 2016, 2017, with the first our first solution, which was really about um, empowering clinicians to work more flexibly, um, as well as giving healthcare employers um, a better way to understand their gaps in the rota and fill it more efficiently um, with safe and compliant clinicians. So really it was about kind of, um, and, and then to do that, we the first solution was a temporary staffing solution. So it's about addressing the temporary staffing space, um, often called in the NHS uh, locums. Um, historically, the NHS has been um, heavily reliant on agencies, locum agencies, and that basically provided the supply of clinicians to help hospitals plug in gaps in the rota. Some of these gaps are short-term gaps like sickness and um, increased pressure in the department over a certain specific time of the season. But often some of these gaps are long-term gaps simply because hospitals couldn't um, recruit all the clinicians they needed to run their service, full-time clinicians that is, so relied on these local agencies to plug these gaps. Um, and that's a costly way of doing it because whilst local agencies are really good at targeting specific hard to fill shifts, um, what we found is the NHS was overly reliant on them on every shift. Shifts that we we believe that your own staff and your own ability to build your own network of clinicians, um, often referred to the staff bank, um, should be able to fill those shifts. So our first solution was really about empowering hospitals to build their own networks of pools of flexible workers. And We've evolved to allow multiple hospitals to come and collaborate to pool their networks. It's called collaborative staff banks. And it allows multiple hospitals to come together and pool their networks. So you have networks of networks. Um, so a certain region, for example, it could be Greater Manchester, it could be Cheshire and Merseyside, it could be certain parts of London, 
uh, the hospitals in that region come together, create a collaborative, allow doctors and nurses to be passcoded through the system, move freely through the system, plug in gaps, book shifts as when they want, and um, so you end up having that much, much, much more resilience in your workforce. Um, and again, as I said, for the clinicians, it was just about giving them that flexibility, that choice, um, eliminating the middle man, allowing them directly to engage with hospitals that have gaps in their rotas and, and for them to be able to book um, on their own terms. So that was a temporary staffing solution. As you can imagine, that really is about targeting those temporary staff who historically, traditionally would have chosen the agency route, um, but, um, but, but, but we have made the staff bank route, which is a direct engagement with hospital, the more appealing um, and desirable route, which of course is more also not just quality, it's cost, cost effective for the hospital. And the hospital saves millions of pounds um, on the agency fees. To be clear, we, we, we still we have an agency solution that allows the very hard to fill smaller number of shifts to actually go down to the agency route because sometimes that's what you actually do need. Um, and, and specifically for those you know, very hard to fill or sometimes very last minute shifts, agencies are great suppliers of that. It's just, a, it's just about not creating a dependency on that for every shift. Yeah. However, over the years, we, um, I mean, we've always kind of recognized that when we talk about flexible working and pension empowerment, that we're not just talking about the ones who choose to work temporary shifts. Um, it's about everyone being empowered to, um, to, to, to work in an environment where their preferences and their way of working or their choices can be taken into, 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 um, into account as a road is being built. We also want to make sure that hospitals had tools to plan and deploy their workforce, not just their temporary staff, but their entire workforce. So our second evolution in the last couple of years has been introducing our rostering solution, which is our second big solution. Um, so we kind of have a multiple in platform that there's temporary staffing and permanent staffing, but the permanent staffing part is a, is a rostering solution, it's a scheduling solution. And it brings all these principles that we managed to accomplish on the temporary staffing solution, but to all staff, so that every doctor or nurse in the hospital can benefit from some of the kind of innovation that we that we introduced. And key to our rostering platform is appreciating that. You know, historically, clinicians have been rostered in a way that kind of that kind of fits the world of 10, 20 years ago, when hospitals worked in silos, staff groups, clinicians worked in silos, so doctors were rostered with doctors, nurses were rostered with nurses. A hospital has a certain rota uh, and, and, and scheduled, depending on what their hospital next door was doing. Um, clinicians were pretty much kind of set into fixed rotas that was predetermined for them. And that kind of worked for um, the way healthcare operated 10 or 20 years ago. But in a world where healthcare is operating across boundaries of hospitals, where clinicians often run clinics in multiple hospitals, when doctors and nurses often have very shared roles, when rotas need to be designed around activities that involve multiple staff groups, doctors, nurses, therapists, then the older systems really kind of when fit for purpose anymore. Um, of course, when you take into account clinician flexibility and clinician preferences, it just makes it a bit more complex. So we had to build something that is from the ground up fit for purpose for today's healthcare and tomorrow's healthcare, future-proofing it for a world where healthcare needs to be more flexible, more agile, um, employment is, is more clinician-centric, um, planning and deployment is more data-driven, about true capacity demand rather than presumptuous capacity demand planning. Um, and that's kind of the, the what this, that second module is trying to achieve. Amazing. And um, I mean, loads of questions, but I guess the one I'll start with is um, like your inspiration for fixing this particular problem. Was this something you, you experienced firsthand when you were practicing or was it something like colleagues felt like where, where did it, where did it come from? Cause it's obviously a very specific problem. I doubt you would have really thought about it if you hadn't worked within the NHS. Yeah. So, I mean, where the problem came in. So I, it came from, obviously I, I was a doctor in the NHS. Um, so I had, and so was my co-founder, by the way, he's also a doctor in the NHS. We met, we met back in medical school and we stayed in touch. And we both had kind of lived and witnessed experience of rigidity and inflexibility. Um, we both had interests outside of using our set scope in the hospital environment. And we wanted to have a slightly more of a portfolio career. 
and I know it sounds a cliche right now because everyone's talking about portfolio careers as they should. Um, but back then, we thought we were the odd ones out. Um, quickly, we realized we were not. And quite a lot of people were thinking that way. Um, but that's not where the pain dropped. Because at that point, you know, we thought about, we, we met once at the conference and we thought about the problem. And we thought about whether we can be part of the solution, but we really didn't know where to start from because it felt like an insurmountable problem. Um, we didn't know anything about workforce management, HR, clinical governance, um, compliance, how hospitals even operated. Um, so just because we had the lived and witness experience of a clinician does not really give you enough insight to solve the problem. It tells you what the pain is, but not really how to solve it. The serendipitous moment happened when I joined Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in 2016 as a clinical innovation fellow. And my role in that hospital was to work with hospitals management with the hospital was going through a merger with another hospital in the region, and they had a transformation team that was looking at improving their services, the quality of their services, um, efficiencies, cost improvements, um, rewriting some clinical workflows. And they've really hired me amongst the other a few doctors who, who were part of the innovation team and the transformation team. And one of the projects that was, that was assigned to me was looking how they can become the employer of choice for flexible doctors, for temporary staff, for locums, to reduce their reliance on agencies, but also to improve their offering for their doctors. And six months into that role, um, obviously, I, I had I had kind of the, 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 the immense privilege of working with some incredible people in the, in the hospital who, who were the main experts. They, they, they knew exactly where the problems are and often exactly how we should be solving it. Um, they either didn't have the headspace or tools to do it. And I think six months of that role, I kind of mapped out the processes with them. I've mapped out the challenges, the pain points, and realizing quickly that temporary staffing was not about supply and demand only, as much as that's, that's a big part of it. It's not only that. It's a logistical nightmare of coordinating hundreds of doctors or nurses, booking thousands of shifts every month to make sure that's done efficiently, compliantly, safely, um, meant that it just often was outsourced it's easier to outsource it to an agency rather than doing it yourself. So six months of that role, I kind of did my own wireframes and prototyping of concepts, and I presented to the hospital management. Um, again, I was I was incredibly uh, lucky to be working with some very you know forward-thinking leaders in that trust that was very much happy to to jump on that journey with us and be the first user and first adopter and prototype and allow us to fail as we tested and validated our assumptions, um, which, by the way, was hugely valuable. It's probably the best thing that happened to the business in the early days yeah. is to have a, a, an enterprise institution that is willing to be an innovation partner with you, um, which allowed us to try to fail, to keep experimenting until we got something out of the door in 2017 that massively moved the needle and had an immediate impact on their ability to fill shifts with bank, staff bank doctors, to recruit more flexible workers directly on the bank, to allow a more efficient way for them to find and self-manage their bookings. And we've increased their fill rate massively and saved them about 1.2 million pounds a year in, in unnecessary spend. Um, and that's when I quit my job, went full-time, raise our first proper proper seed fund and yeah the rest of this if you're listening and thinking i'd love to work for a company like this then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies from climate change to social impact to green transport you'll be able to find the perfect job for you trust me check it out www.jobsforgood.io now back to the podcast Wow, perfect storm. And and um, I guess, was there ever an option for you to do this in-house, like internally at the NHS? Or was it a case of just the, the resources you need, the funding wouldn't be available, it had to be something that was built actually yeah. externally without? Yeah, I mean, that was that was something that I wanted to attempt to do, unfortunately. Um, so first of all, like, as you can imagine, building a, a, an R&D dev team is not, not a cheap exercise. And, <laughs> and asking... Yeah, just to fund that is also not probably appropriate because it's a high risk, high reward environment, the world of tech startups. And you really don't want you know, investors and VCs who are used to that know what they're signing up to. Whereas you can imagine a hospital with taxpayer 
funded organization probably would not necessarily be able to incubate that kind of thing. That's not to say that that world is changing. We see now a lot more hospitals, and including Chelsea, by the way, who are kind of trying to be innovation partners. I think Chelsea, from our experience with Patchwork, has found that to be a very positive experience that they're now also working with more innovators to see how we can support them more, more uh, uh, um, uh, concretely in their early ventures. But it's also right to say that you would want a hospital to take the kind of risks that you know VCs are comfortable doing. So I think it's a balance. It's about finding that right partnership with the early adopters, with the innovation partners, which is what many hospitals can be, but also uh, appreciating where you can take risk on the R&D side because... As we all know, you know, all ventures are successful, um, and and that risk needs to be um, needs to be taken by people who are comfortable taking that risk. Absolutely, and and if we fast forward to today, um, you mentioned it's a multi-product platform now. In terms of like how many NHS sites or trusts that you work with, how many users you have on the platform, can you give some insights into yeah. like, the scale of the operation? Um, so we're working with about. 100 hospitals across the UK, just over 100 hospitals. Um, that's roughly about, just I can't remember the exact number, 30 plus NHS trusts and health boards, because um, in Wales and other parts of the country, they're called health boards. Um, so roughly about 30 plus. Um, we've been onboarding quite a few in the last few months. So I think that number might be a bit outdated, um, but I know just over 100 sites. And we're working with roughly around um, 50,000 clinicians across the NHS. And again, that's kind of number on top of my mind, but, but again, it might be also a few weeks, a few weeks old now. Um, because we're constantly adding more hospitals and more, more clinicians to our platform. Um, so yeah, uh, we're, we're booking roughly about 4 million hours a year. Um, at the beginning, at the end of last year, I think this is also increasing because since now we've onboarded some more hospitals. So quite a lot of activity. Um, quite a lot of increase in demand for our solutions in the last couple of years. Um, but again, of course, it's not all rosy with, with, with more with more work, with more um, more customers, more users means uh, the stakes are higher, means we need to um, up our game, make sure that we continuously um, stay on the edge of innovation, that we're not that getting comfortable, not stalling, we're not becoming stale. Um, and but also innovating becomes a bit more complex because you're no longer innovating when you have a handful of clients. You can afford some mistakes more so than when you have a lot more clients. Um, yeah. that you need to make sure that the lights are always on and that um, you are not moving fast and breaking things. So it's 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 a different beast, but it's still the excitement of every customer joining us on our journey, every onboarding we go through. There's still that kind of first day excitement. Um, every time we sign up with a new customer and we start implementing with them and we go live with them, we still get the same um, kind of dopamine hit, that reward that comes from, from every go live. Oh, I love that. I, th- I think everyone gets that still. If they love what they do every time, even though it's your, it could be your thousands customer, if they come in, you're like, yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and I guess to talk about customer acquisition for a moment, like you, you mentioned, like you, you, you know, you had that amazing opportunity with, with uh, Chelsea and Westminster to, to have them as like the, the first pilot. Um, I imagine the first, the next couple of customers off that were quite difficult. And now you've got a track record and I'm sure there's some very clear, you mentioned some of the cost savings earlier and like the ROI it is demonstrable. Like it's very easy to show. Is it, is it, is it easier now to make traction? Like you have trust signed up. So it's actually, it's becoming, um, I'll never let's say straightforward, or is it like a case of the way the NHS works and how procurement works? It doesn't matter how many relationships you have and how many other sites you work with. Each one is separate and, and the procurement processes are just quite painful. Hmm. Probably gonna give you a cop-out answer to say yes to both. Um, but let me explain. <laughs> so it definitely gets easier because in the early days you're kind of uh, no one knows your name, no one knows your brand, no one you know customers can be a bit risk averse working with a startup with little track records um versus just going with a safe choice. And um so definitely that part is much easier now because in our space, in, in our vertical of workforce management, I think um, we're a lot more known now. I wouldn't say we're a household name yet, um, but we're, we're getting very close to that. So we're rarely going to a hospital where someone hasn't heard, someone in the world of workforce management hasn't heard of us. 
and more often than not um, has heard a lot about it. So it does definitely, and having track record in the case studies and use cases and the reference sites definitely allows us to be able to um, be more confident in, being, in articulating the value proposition. Um, so I would say the first, the last five customers we've, we've won are definitely easier than the first five customers we've won. But there are certain things that don't change. Um, and that is the process of taking an organization on a journey because there are choices in the market. And um, whilst every, every, every tech company, every startup will tell you that we do things differently, right? And we do. But it doesn't mean that different suppliers might not be doing trying to solve the same problem in their own way. Which basically means you still need to do the work to um, educate the market about what makes you different, how you're, why you've chosen the approach you've chosen, how you've differentiated your solution, um, and how you're able to tackle the specific pain points. And I think the trick here is really investing more in understanding the journey each organization is on, each hospital is on, so that you are not taking a cookie cutter approach in how you tackle the challenges. Um, well, of course, it's a single solution that we have, but it's a highly configurable solution that can be configured to different environments and different challenges to focus on specific pain points. And again, because different hospitals have different cultures and different kind of histories and different sets of, of, of challenges that they're trying to solve with a solution like ours. So that doesn't change. The journey you go in the organization, the stakeholder buy-in, the understanding of their um, particular needs still needs to happen. And I would say you also have to accept the fact that, you know, in enterprise, when you're doing enterprise SaaS, enterprise tech, um, it's very much about consultative, consultative conversations. It's very much so about understanding that it's always the relationship that you're building during the sales process is probably the same relationship that you're maintaining for many years to come. So, um, so it's 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 still it's still gonna take a while, and even if the value proposition is obvious, even if the cost benefit analysis shouts out obvious things that must be done, um, just need to go through a process that allows the organization to make sure they scope the market, they understood what's out there, understood why you are the choice for them. Because listen, you might not be the right choice for every organization, and I think that's okay. It's okay to accept the fact that. For some hospitals, they might be on a different journey where we might not be the right fit. More often than not, we can be the right fit if we have the right conversation, yep. configuring our approach the right way. Um, the last thing about procurement, I don't think necessarily the NHS is more tricky than any other enterprise. I appreciate the reputation it might have, that it's a tricky beast. Um, and of course, it ha it's tricky because it's healthcare, more so than that because it's a publicly funded healthcare. Healthcare is risk averse, rightly so. Healthcare does want to make sure that systems are always the right systems that won't cause any patient harm. And, and that's okay. That, that, that completely is the right thing to do. And that's what makes the NHS tricky. Not necessarily that it is associated with uh, a public sector. Um, I speak to a lot of colleagues in enterprise SaaS world who work with large kind of uh, 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 Fortune 500 companies or FTSE, FTSE organizations and yeah, their sales cycle is similar to ours. Their process is similar to ours. Their, their challenges of convincing a CFO to go down a journey or to tackle a procurement process are not that dissimilar to an NHS trust. Occasionally, occasionally even harder. So yeah, I, I, it's, it's complex because it's healthcare. And I think that's yeah, yeah. You, just, you just learn how to, 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 to work that process and you develop it expertise and just understanding how to get through that procurement process. Makes, makes a lot of sense. And, and I guess looking forwards now, what, what are you really excited about that Patchwork Health are, are focused on for the next like, year or two? What are some of the big things in the pipeline? Um, ooh, there's a few things that I can't announce yet, but please watch the space. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are a couple of exciting announcements later on this year. Um, but really primarily what really excites me is that, that you know, with with the with our three or four kind of separate modules that create our our solution right now, I think this is the first year where we can confidently go into any healthcare organization and talk about how we are an end to end verticalized uh, workforce management system that can tackle the entirety of their workforce 
planning and deployment challenges, whether it's permanent staff, temporary staff, collaboration, or individual trust requirements, staff groups, regardless of staff, staff groups, doctors, nurses, therapists, we are able to provide that kind of operating system now for hospitals that are looking to manage and deploy the workforce. Um, so that excites me because up until now, we, we provided specific solutions, specific problems, rather than being able to you know, support an end-to-end, uh, fully integrated approach. Uh, the second thing that excites me is we are um, working with some incredible um, NHS partners who are deploying some really clever collaborations that go beyond historic collaborations, uh, which means more hospitals are actually using our systems to work better together uh, rather than compete for the same resource, but actually work better together to share the resources to achieve the outcomes they want to achieve for their population health and their, and their patients, population and patients. Um, and this is kind of the first year where ICS's integrated care systems, which in the UK basically means formalizing collaboration in specific regions, it's the first year they've come online and that has started some very exciting conversations. And there's a couple of exciting projects that will be going live later on this year. So these are the two things that excite me. Um, of course, always apprehensive about the challenges that are yet to come, scaling challenges as always, um, the macros that we're all facing right now, um, but generally no point to focus on the things that you can't, you have no influence on and focus on the things you have influence on. And our focus is to remain as innovative as we can with our solutions and as customer obsessed as we can with our wraparound services. And if we continue doing that, um, I'm confident that we continue to deliver the work that we promised to deliver. 100% agree. I mean, you've got me excited <laughs> just listening to that. So um, looking forward to watching this space and, and seeing what happens and what else you come out with this year. Um, and as to chat to you a little bit about your personal journey as a founder, um, yeah. and, and you kind of touched on this earlier, so this might be quite an easy question, but, but I wondered like the decision-making process, like you'd obviously, you trained, you'd spent time studying and practicing in medicine to then step away from that, to go and build something external mm. to the NHS. Mm. Was that, was that a tough decision? Was it like, oh, am I going to not necessarily throw away, but step away from something I've been working for years on? Or was it a case of actually, I see this as an opportunity to do even more in terms of like scaling and multiplying the impact I can have for this organization? Um, Craig, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, quitting medicine. Um, or stepping away from it. I'm still a doctor, still licensed, but um, quitting away from working as a doctor has been the hardest decision I had to make. And I didn't let go of it easily. In the first two or three years of working, um, of, of founding Patchwork and, and building, the, building the company, the products, I was still working a shift a week in a hospital. Actually, Chelsea was most responsible. I was still on their bank working a shift a week using our own app. So, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a tester to make sure that it's working. <laughs> um, so I was that flexible worker who's booking shifts every Sunday. And, and I did that for the first couple of years. Um, part of that is because I just loved medicine. Part of that is because I um, couldn't let go. It was so part of my identity. I couldn't picture a day where I'm not using my stethoscope clinically. Um, and again, part of that is so I could stay, remain close to the problem I'm trying to solve. I eventually had to accept the fact that I could no longer do both. Um, the business was, and the building a startup was so exhausting, as exciting as it is. Highs are highs, the lows are low. And I got to a point where I needed some rest time on the weekends, where I probably needed to um, just focus only on path work. And that was just before Series A. And um, I still miss it. It's still one of the hardest decisions. I feel I'm making an impact on the macro level for sure. I still um, think I'd never have it any other way. Um, I have no regrets doing what I'm doing. Um, every day I'm learning. Um, every day in Batworth is like a year outside of Batworth in terms of the learning you do about building teams and, and, and tackling challenges. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I, there's a side of me that misses that. And my only hope is that I will still have that somehow part of my future as much as it was part of my past. Um, hard to say how and when and where, um, but it feels like it will always be part of me, part of what I've done for a good chunk of my life and part of my identity, 
even if it's not in the forefront of my everyday today, um, it's always going to be in the background. And I'm still very grateful for every um, day I spent, um, every patient I spent uh, working with in the first few years of my career as a doctor. No, I'm glad I asked the question. I think sometimes like big sacrifices, that could be a really powerful motivator as well. Like if you know what you've stepped away from and you know how much you're missing, yeah. that, it kind of can make you even more motivated to make what you're, you're now doing work. Um, you, you talked about kind of growth and learning, um, which no surprise, but I was going to ask like the, the founder role, like uh, can you explain yeah. like, how different that looks? It, you know, the early days of being a founder versus the founder role that you have today, how the two look, like how different they are and, and how you've managed that transition. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's critical to manage that transition. So it's massively different. In the first, in the first couple of years, you're probably the jack of all trades. You are the product guy, the sales guy, the ops guy, the finance guy. You do probably do it all. I mean, I, I think for the first few years, I was, I was still running payroll for the company. <laughs> um, literally, probably up until 2019 or something like that. Right? It's, it's, it was like the most stressful 26th, 27th day of every month. Um, I literally couldn't take it annually around that time because I was the one who was running So um, you're massively wearing many hats. And that's a good thing, by the way, because it allows you to understand every domain in the business so that as you scale and you, your role evolves, you actually kind of know what it looks like. So, for example, I strongly believe even if you step away from product, a founder should always be very close to product because at the end of the day, an entrepreneurial way of thinking of the problem and solving it is always going to be uh, needed for a startup and scale-up to challenge the incumbents and the market and be able to be at the edge of innovation. So uh, you can't hire your way into innovation. You can have incredible people in your team who are incredible kind of um, at their craft of what they do with a product or engineering or anything, the R&D function, but it still needs to be led by a founder, uh, the vision of it at least. Secondly, for example, I think sales, the sales playbook is closely written by the co-founder, one of the founders, and I'm, I'm, I'm the I'm lead sales, uh, still the lead sales guy in the business. I say that because, again, you can build incredible teams around you, um, but takes a little bit of an entrepreneurial way of thinking about your market that allows you to see around the corner of what's happening next and be able to uh, tackle um, the challenges of scaling a, a sales organization. Um, I definitely have taken a step back from a lot of um, the revenue team, the client operation teams, the, of course, finance and people teams. I've got some incredible people in the business right now who are much smarter than me at what they do. And... Um, have have incredible track record, but having done that myself in the first few years gives me at least a really good understanding of what it looks like, what I expect from them. I can help them. I can help highlight their blind spots if they have any blind spots. I can step in and support if there is a gap at some point in leadership or a gap in availability of certain individuals, and 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 I don't think. Um, that should change. The minute my role becomes like a hired CEO, well, then that's not the best role for me because I'm sure people who have been CEOs for 20 years will be better CEOs than I am. Um, it's really important to remember that I am a founder CEO. And what makes me different is the founder part, is the entrepreneurial way of thinking about a problem and, and building teams around you to solve that problem. Um, it's also appreciating that your role changes. Every year, my job description changes. And it's frustrating because you get comfortable. You're like, yes, I got a hang of it now. I know what I need to do. And boom, your role changes again. I'm like, oh, damn it. Now I have to move again. I have to run again. <laughs> You're always on your toes. You're always changing. Um, it helped that I have amazing mentors. And I really recommend executive coaching for that, especially when you're at that stage of, at the end of the, venture startup stage heading towards the scale-up stage massively recommend executive coaching because they tend to be really good at holding the mirror to you flagging to you the areas that you need to think about as you build that first team the first team is the team that reports to you as a founder it's the, it's the team that that you lean on heavily to help you scale the business your most important role as a ceo founder becomes um, enabling that team, supporting that team, building that team, uh, holding that team accountable and ensuring that they are the best versions of themselves. Um, that is basically the biggest influence you can have. 
Um, you probably heard that saying, it's about working on the business, not in the business. You got to step away from the weeds and just understand what you're doing to enable the people in that business to be the best versions of themselves. And as a CEO founder, whilst you're accountable to everyone, the first team is the most important team, but you need to really understand how you're getting the most out. Lots of good advice in there. And I think that's the common uh, mistake I see with early stage founders is like the, the lack of ability to let go when they need to and holding on to things for too long. Um, you talked a lot about the, you know, getting the right people, building teams. Um, so, uh, you know, mine says Patchworks well past 100 people right now in the business. Um, which, which phase of growth did you have, have you found like most challenging so far and why? I mean, every, every phase of growth is challenging. Right, because it's easy for me to say the current challenge, the current phase is challenge. I think, I think, I think humans are we've got bad memories. We, f- we forget, forget the, the we, we, we tend to remember, we tend to have a positive memory of our past, maybe not all the time, not for everything. Sometimes we can be a bit more on the negative side of our memory. But I think potentially founders who, who tend to be generally optimistic about the world might have a slightly more rosy picture of the past. I don't think any stage is harder than any other stage of building a business because in the early days, you've got little to no resources and little to no support in your jack of all trades. That is a different category of difficulty. Today, you have more resources, you're surrounded with more talent, you've got better coaching and mentorship, but now you have the stakes are higher, the teams are bigger, the complexity of the environment around you, and the complexity of managing bigger teams present a whole different challenge of how do you maintain agility, maintain um, focus and, and, and able to you know, guide an entire organization that is now not 10 people, but 100 people into, into a single direction, a single kind of North, North, North Star. So I think each, each phase has its challenges and I cannot pick one that is harder than the other. Um, I think you just need to adapt to the different environments you're in, be a fast learner, be coachable, um, seek advice and, and, and iterate fast. Um, and just don't, don't sit on a problem hoping it will go away on its own. Just address it head on as early as you can, whether it's a product market fit issue, uh, employee fit issue, uh, a business model issue, just address them as fast as possible and learn from them. Um, but I think each stage is more difficulties and I don't think I can pick one to be the harder than the other. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair enough. Um, and the other thing when I was doing my research and I was looking at the team that you built there was um, it was incredibly diverse across all teams, across all levels. Um, but, you know, was that by design? And um, second question is like advice for other founders because I think, you know, building diverse workforce is like something that's a priority for everyone, but it's a real struggle as well. Like any advice you have that you can share? Um, so to ask the first question, so yeah, very, we're super proud of the diversity of our team. Um, I mean, I think when we were at a team of 70 or 80, we've done a check and we realized we have 25 languages spoken in the organization, which was incredible for a team that small, relatively small for the number of languages. Mm. Um, um, I can't remember the stat, but a significant number was not born in the UK. So I'm, I'm not, you know, to, to answer your question, it was not actually intentional um, or it wasn't diversity was important for us, but it wasn't manufactured in our process. I think it was more organic. Now, maybe because both co-founders happen not to be UK born citizens. Uh, we're both, we're both uh, born in the UK. That might naturally uh, have a bit of an influence subconsciously. Uh, the early, the early people who joined us were equally um, of diverse backgrounds, I think the senior leadership team, equal diverse backgrounds. And it, it's almost one of those things that it have a snowball effect. Diversity drives diversity. So even if you're not intentionally moving from 20 to 100 and you're like, all right, guys, we're now more than 20 people in the company. Let's make sure that we hit a certain quota of diversity or whatever. Um, now, of course, historical organizations that have, have, have a challenge should actually try and intentionally go out of the way to improve diversity and inclusion in their hiring process. Um, and now as we scale, our people team constantly asking themselves that question, are we making sure that we're posting job ads in the right places that attracts 
the kind of candidates that would not come in from certain other places, certain backgrounds, um, tend to go to different job sites or are recruited in a different way. So, of course, as we scale, that becomes a bigger part of our ethos and process. But in the early days, it was just kind of the organic compounding effect of from very early on, it was diverse team and then diversity attracts diversity. And it kept on becoming a, a positive feedback loop that we didn't really need to intentionally change that. So, um, but really, really pleased that we ended up in that position because diversity in backgrounds results in diversity in thinking. I think that's the most important part because this is not only about ensuring we're a place that is welcoming to all, but also that we are a place that can have an interesting discourse and challenging ideas that um, that a, a diverse environment will create and, and, and limit some of that groupthink that might come in from a less diverse environment. So it's really important for you know leaders and businesses to ask themselves the questions: Why are you? Why do you care about diversity? Is it optics thing only, or is it because you genuinely believe? Um, that diversity actually brings diversity in thought and diversity in, in ideas. And that's good for your teams. It's good to challenge each other that way. So, um, of course, it's just the right thing to do to make sure that you are actually um, open to all and you're not creating environments that's unwelcoming to others. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think if you can, if you can actually do that from day one, then that's a, a really great place to be as opposed to it being uh, manufactured, I think was the term you used. Um, have you got time for one last question? Let's go for it. Um, you, you touched on the people and talent team, and it's, again, a question I get f- and conversation I have with founders is, is like, when's the right time to pull the trigger on investing in the internal talent teams? Um, what, mm. what for you was the trigger point? No, I can't remember at what stage we hire our first. We hired people before talent. Um, I think it's at the somewhere around somewhere between forty or fifty people. So we had our first internal talent. I think so. I can't really remember. Um, I guess it becomes so. It's 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 when you get to the stage where the hiring manager and the founders are probably running out of capacity to to um, speak to as much talent out there as possible. When your talent management, when you start looking for talent management that's less, less reactive but more proactive, where you're looking for a constant supply of amazing talents, uh, being able to find them um, and keep a pipeline of talent that you're aware of so that the minute you do need to expand a certain part of your business and team or you're looking to bolster a certain team with additional talent, you're not always starting from scratch. And I think, so I, I would say there's a number specific to that. It's 30 people, 40 people, 50 people. It really depends on different businesses. But just think about when you feel that you need a constant attention on building a talent pipeline, when you're ready to move from reactive to proactive. Um, and, and I guess when you're at the scaling phase, really, um, is when probably you need that. And, you know, there's different models. There is the kind of outsourced talent partners who can be part of your team. And we've, we've done that when we were in the early stage. There's like talent partners who are just permanent members of your team. That's what we do today. Um, and there's hybrid models. You can always kind of have a bit of in-house, a bit of partnership. And the partnerships tend to be really helpful for specialized roles. So I think, um, yeah, the right time is when you feel like hiring managers are no longer just getting the odd hire every few months that you actually need a constant proactive pipeline. Um, and yeah, for us, I think it was something around 40 people um, a few years ago. Uh, and that was when we felt that it's important to, to invest in that resource. Nice. Nice. Well, and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, for anyone that wants to follow the Patchwork Health journey, and especially those exciting things you talked about earlier that are coming up later this year, like where are you, where's the company most active on socials? So Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, Twitter at Hey Patchwork and LinkedIn, Patchwork Health, if you look up and you can follow me at Anna Snader on Twitter. And if you look me, Anna Snader on LinkedIn, you'll find me. Um, so yeah, that's how you can keep track of our news and our updates. Perfect. Well, look, thanks again for coming on the show and uh, yeah, I look forward to following your journey. Likewise, Greg, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me.
That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about the show. The more people we can get involved, the more hope we have for making the world a better place. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.